May God get the glory and each of you receive something from his spirit today that speaks to your heart and soul and spirit and possibly even your mind. Let's dig in. We've been blessed this summer to be in the Psalms. I chose Psalm 27 out of obedience, sensing that the Lord wanted me to share it. I can remember where I was when the Lord encouraged me with this Psalm. Many years ago, we were at the Hulls, former CBCers, for our scattered church group, another word for small group. I was on the floor with my hands holding up my chin, reading the word, when the Lord seemed to download into my spirit some of what I sensed was the application of this Psalm to my life and that is what I want to share with you. My point today is that the word of God is accessible for me, for my, your, anyone's life and their situations. Should we have ears to hear and eyes to see what it is that the spirit of God wants us to glean or take away from his word. That's the short version. I want to give you some of the process on that first 3.30 a.m. awakening after I agreed to do this. The pink slide. Okay, you can leave that. What came to my mind was a long lost poem, Pat, you'll love this, by Eve Miriam, Miriam, of my in my head. How to eat a poem. Sorry, this is how the Lord works with me. As a former English teacher who went on to become a special education teacher, I tend towards being a teacher. So welcome to class, students. And now I had to learn some of this stuff. So let's see what happens. So we have the slides of the poem. Don't be polite, bite in, pick it up with your fingers and lick the juice that may run down your chin. It's ready and ripe now, whenever you are. Oh, we didn't do this. Can you put this in the slide? <laughs> Never said I was a techie. <laughs> huh? The thumb on the other? Okay, try it now. You do not need a knife or a fork or spoon or plate or napkin or tablecloth. For there's no core or stem or rind or pit or seed or skin to throw away. That was not a lovely picture. Debbie got that off offline. Take a moment to picture that first bite into a ripe peach or mango or nectarine or plum or watermelon with the juices running down your chin. Can you see yourself reaching for that napkin? And that's what we are about to do with Psalm 27. We're going to bite into it. Without hesitation and enjoy it. We can chew over the words and taste them while digesting their meaning and think of the food for thought and nourishment for the mind and soul that is ours. As the last line of the poem's first stanza says, it's ready and ripe now, whenever you or we are. We need ourselves and the fruit, or ourselves and the Bible. Nothing matters but the reader and the poem, and for us, nothing matters but the reader and the Bible and Holy Spirit. So before we take our first bite, all this is introduction, so you know, don't count it against me for my time. Before we take our first bite of this delectable fruit, here's some backstory, short version. Well, short to me, <laughs> it's relative. <laughs> I married the love of my life, Vinny, back in 1992. He was a widower with six children, three still at home. His wife had passed to glory in January of 1989, 
And we met in July of 1989. We waited for the children to come on board, but it wasn't happening and it was getting difficult waiting. So if you read between the lines. So with three weeks to plan, we decided to marry on the winter school vacation of 1992. That's a lot of waiting. And amidst that bliss, we stepped into a difficult season of our life. And we have since lived above our circumstances by God's grace. 31 years later, two of the children are in our lives. That's a very abbreviated version. It was in the throes of this chaos, difficulty, pain, that I received the gift of Psalm 27. When I first took a bite out of this Psalm, join me and take a big bite out of Psalm 27 and see how it may be pertinent to our lives. I pray that something in it will resonate with you. I think I repeated that. Thank you for the wonderful reading, Doug. It was so great. I knew you would do such a good job. So back to being on the floor at the hulls, my chin, my hands and my chin. Verse one in the NIV, I guess I know the message. I like, it's, I like it, but I wouldn't preach from it. <laughs> you know, um, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I can't say that all of what follows is what the Lord gave me that original night, but it is a combination of that and what he gave me while I was biting into this Psalm for this talk. I did some research before getting up here as I know my audience likes to have their minds involved as well as their emotions. Doing my due diligence and wanting to appear scholarly to you, I looked up why is Lord in all caps, something you can't see here because it's all in all caps. But if you read it in your regular Bible, it just has it in caps. You can Google anything these days, let me tell you. At Christianity.com, I found out that there are three different versions of Lord, all caps, standardized capitalization and non-capitalization, and that it isn't consistent within all the various translations either, and that it's often not one word in the original language. Suffice it to say that when all caps, it is Yehovah. Yehovah, the self-existent or eternal, the Jewish national name of God. Transliterating the word from Hebrew to English, you get the letters, you can read them, right? And this is what is called a tetragrammaton, meaning four letters or four consonants. The complete capitalization is to convey the, um, the proper name or title for God as complete creator and ever present one. Knowing that this ever-present one is who is my light and my salvation comforts me. He never leaves me or forsakes me, according to Deuteronomy 31.6. He is always present. I got to tell you, I have newfound respect for anyone who has to put a sermon together. I probably have enough information for five more talks or a thesis or something. Because you just way leads on to way, you look up this and you look up that and then it goes here and you start, it's just, it's just amazing. So I also decided to look up light and salvation. I don't know Greek or Hebrew, but I do know how to read references in my study Bible or my life application Bibles. You could do this as well. Remember Steve Armstrong last week telling us how after three years of Hebrew, he forgot it all <clears throat> almost immediately but that people for whom it is a passion can be resourced to help when developing a sermon. Remember, it's only last week. 
And that was reassuring to me, as I often think that we don't have to reinvent the wheel and that there's nothing new under the sun. It just may be new to you or to me, or the Lord might enliven it to you for such a time as this. Reminds me of a saying, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And not until then. And it takes what it takes is one of my other mottos. For purposes of this talk, I reflected rather than just reading. Verse one, what could God being this light mean for me? In Isaiah 60, 19, it says, the sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. I'm going to cry. And your God shall be your glory. What an exchange. The light of God is brighter than the sun or the moon. Picture that with me, please. That's bright. That's a lot of bright. And I know somebody that does cartoons, and he says, you know, there's no shadow. He's so bright, there's no shadow. In heaven, you know, when he's around, there's no shadow. So, and my salvation, which was another extensive word search. Do you know that if you type in meaning of salvation as used in the Bible, that you can come up with all of this <laughs> and more? I just put a few of them up there. How does Jesus define salvation? Two meanings of salvation, original meaning and best explanation, etc., etc., etc. I settled on what Mike Leake had to say in an article I read when he indicated that the Bible speaks of our salvation in a bit fuller terms than simply being rescued from hell. Some people have their fire insurance, and that's as far as it goes. Quote from him. When thinking about salvation, it might be helpful to think about what we are saved from, what we are saved to, and whom we are saved by. One could think of it as in 2 Timothy 1.9, it says, he has saved us. Or in the present tense, 1 Corinthians 1.18 talks about those being saved. And the future in Romans 5, 9, we shall be saved. Union with Christ is the common thread in all of these tense. At this point, I wrote in my notes, don't get lost in the weeds. <laughs> For my purposes, in addition to being saved from the consequences of my sin because of what Jesus did on the cross, salvation is ongoing in the ways that I am being restored, transformed to wholeness soundness, well-being, and I pray that it's likewise for you. For me, knowing that the eternal is my stronghold, my place of refuge and safety, offering protection and security during times of distress, was strengthening for me. Yet, even with this light and this salvation and this stronghold, some of us may forget the first part of the verse and respond to the latter part. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? Back to the download from that night years and years ago. Let me tell you, when you have six children antagonistic towards you, it can bring up some fear. That night, I felt the Lord impressing me not to fear, and he became the stronghold of my life. Many a time he held me, soothed me, gave me wisdom, strengthened me, 
and strengthened us. I believe that for the psalmist, this might be a rhetorical question. Perhaps there is not an answer expected, because if God is truly our light, our salvation, and our stronghold, perhaps this fear will be diminished or dismissed more readily, possibly even non-existent. I love the word Selah in the Bible, and I put Selah on that, pause and think of that. Sometimes we need to let things come down and into our, our being. As mere mortals, this is often easier said than done, but while difficult, it may not be impossible to do, especially when we are graced with the remembrance of all that God is, Lord, light, salvation, stronghold. Some of us, however, may take this question of, of who might I be afraid as an opportunity to make a mental list or stuff just pops up in our heads. We have all been a prisoner of fear at one time or another. Fear of rejection, abandonment, misunderstanding, uncertainty, sickness, or even death. Names of people or situations can come readily to mind, and the list goes on and on and on. In my case, it was the difficulty of interpersonal relationships and being rejected or misunderstood all while thinking the whole world is watching. I know I'm not the only one who has or is experiencing these kinds of issues or situations. Where does each of us need to make this a rhetorical question and banish fear possibly, or at least lessen it? Where or when do we need God to be this Lord, this light, this salvation, this stronghold right now? And only you know that for yourself. I encourage you to ask him to be all of that, whatever your issue is that you are facing. Okay, back to difficult but not impossible. In Psalm 118.6 assures us that the Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Wanting whatever is besetting us to be easily resolved or just disappear, we might at such times take a lead from Anna in The King and I and start singing, whenever I feel afraid, I hold my head erect and whistle a happy tune so no one will suspect I'm afraid. Some of us have probably done that as well and also tried other remedies like taking a deep breath, visualizing our happy place, seeking therapy, and many more such solutions, all good things and possibly part of the process. Sometimes we take not so good solutions and use them like isolating or avoiding or denying or drinking or drugging or overeating, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In the moment, gripped by our situations or circumstances or emotions, do we remember to take that big bite? Don't be polite, bite in. in. Remember who God has said he is and who he wants to be in, in each of our lives. Open the book and read about his promises or talk with someone who has taken big bites of the word of God and could come alongside of you at such a time to walk with you through this difficult time of remembering all of who and what God wants to be for us. Lest we forget, I'd like to remind us that this is why we are a community church, to come alongside of each other when needed, 
Someone may be one step ahead of us and can pull us forward. Or someone might be a step behind us and we can reach back and pull them forward. Let's do it. I have to continually remind myself that it might be difficult, but it's not impossible. For with God, all things are possible. And then I have to press repeat. Let's keep on keeping on. When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it's my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. And I can hear you going, yes. Again, six kids can be the wicked. They can be the enemies and they can be the foes. This assured me that God has got me. Many of us can look around at the people or the world around us and feel this kind of pressure coming at us from various directions, home, family, job, church, friends, commitments, broken or difficult relationships are all around us. I often say that we win in the end, but it's a heck of a ride to get there. A bit of a roller coaster, don't you think? This is a good psalm to run to and take big bites from at times like that. We benefit from the constant reminders contained in his word. We have often heard about natural consequences or as Galatians 6 verses 7 and 8 says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. If natural consequences don't seem to be kicking in for your situation, we are not to ruminate on it. For according to Deuteronomy 32, 35, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Part of letting go and letting God might be just to wait and watch, all while praying blessing on them in Jesus' name. Possibly you are being transformed in the midst of all of this, and for that, you can give God thanks. I know I have and continue to do that. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then, I will be confident. Okay, this is David in the war, and it's not that, but we can apply this to our own lives. You have the picture by now. Six kids can appear to be an army. To remain confident takes lots of muscle development and often an act of our will. The more we read this, say this, believe this, practice this, the stronger our muscle becomes. We're going to the gym in a sense. I used to tell the kids in school, we're going to the brain gym. We're going to be working our brains today. Well, in this case, the gym of his word. We just need to do the reps again and again and again. Lift the weight of opening God's word. I'm also reminded of a pendulum. Um, it seems to go to extremes coming to rest in the middle eventually. So it swings and it swings. Each generation seems to swing to the opposite extreme of the previous one. You know, like as we emerge from the dark ages into light, we may not always get it right immediately. Balance takes time and maturity. And that's a word the Lord gave me for about three years when I first came into his relationship with him. My generation seemed to be strict authoritarian, perhaps unfeeling. So then society swung over to feelings being allowed as the standard by which we experience things. I was one who had to learn what I was feeling as they seemed discounted or dismissed. I was often being told what I was feeling. As I recovered, I remember one time feeling angry and I started to laugh because I was so delighted to know what I was feeling. This was a piece of my journey. 
But as a person matures and reads the word, one can see where he or she may need to choose to will to put on the mind of Christ. Or as Psalm 27 says, my heart will not fear. I will be confident. We always feel like not fearing or being confident, but with God's help, one can acknowledge feelings, use them as indicators, but know that they don't get to vote. At least on a good day, they don't. They can be indicators and not dictators. Isn't that good? God's good. He gives me good things. What is good for us may not always feel good. I think Wanda has reminded us of that on a number of occasions. I may have to do things while afraid, such as give this talk. What might each of you have to do afraid or by an act of your will? It's different for all of us. Let me let you in on a little secret. The pendulum is now swinging away from feelings and going over to the will. I've seen it in some of the readings that I'm doing. Perhaps we can all try to be on the forefront of that and balance things out. I will leave that for each of us to wrestle with. It's a journey, a process. Be grace-filled with yourself and with others. Having balance in all things gets easier with time and much exercising of the muscle. Transformation is a long, long process sometimes, but the fruits of your labor are delicious. I encourage you to take that bite. Job, who knew a thing or two about suffering after losing his property, children, getting sick, declared in uh, his four, six, chapter 4, verse 6, should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? In our case, I came to realize that the way the children or the young adults acted said more about them than it did about me and worked on believing that. <laughs> I had to check myself out a few times to make sure that it was true. <laughs> what people think or thought had to be shaken off as humans are sometimes prone to hurt or blame the wounded. Sometimes things just happen so that the glory of God can be revealed. And we have examples of that in the, in the Bible. It helped me to not fixate on mere mortals as I knew I wanted to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and for the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. I have to ask myself if I believe this. And you probably have to ask yourself the same thing. Belief is not a feeling. He will keep me safe in his dwelling and set me high upon a rock. I often think in pictures. Um, so, so picture that child that you are lifting up to keep them safe from whatever, a dog, a wave, a stove, whatever. Now picture God is lifting us up and putting us in a safe place. He's wanting to lift us up, up on that rock to save us from that circumstance or that person. Picture God doing likewise for you in your particular situation. Lord, I believe, heal my unbelief is something we may have to pray at such times. Can God be trusted? Back to a time that a counselor told me it was a matter of trust and me being quick to respond, I negated that, of course, until I got home and then sensed the Lord getting a hold of me and pressing upon me that it indeed was a matter of trust. When he speaks or impresses something, I listen. 
So I went on a trust journey for about three years or so and became more trusting of him along the way. Be careful what you ask for. You know, let me tell you that thing about patience. <laughs> Be careful what you ask for because then you get in all those situations. Well, when you pray for trust, trust increased. However, we often need a refresher course. We do it for many other areas in our life. We have refresher courses. You have to renew your certification in, in different jobs and nursing and, and everything, you know, our credentials. So take another bite of God's word as needed. You may need a refresher course. For some reason that day on the floor at the hulls, the rubber met the road and it became more seared in my heart. It's not a once and done process. It's getting a bit easier or to be honest, more tolerable might be a better word. I recognize things sooner and get to it and sometimes not. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. This came to me, not just the children, but all the people who sit in judgment when someone's life doesn't look like they think it should. And in the secret places of judgment in their hearts, they begin to wonder what you must be doing wrong to have reaped this season in your life. Or you may be thinking it yourself. A searching and fearless moral inventory is a 12-step program um, thing that they do. It can help one to ascertain some of these realities in an individual, individual's life. I've been a part of some 12-step programs. And is it me? I have to ask myself, is it me or them? My work to do or theirs? Did God say that? Or do I need to cast down imaginations? I believe that we often are so ego-driven that we think it has to do with us when it may actually have little or nothing to do with us. It isn't always about me. It isn't always about you. In 2 Chronicles 20:17, Jehoshaphat is told to stand firm, <clears throat> hold your position. The battle is not yours, but God's. Same counselor once asked me if I could just do nothing about the situation. Stop trying to fix things. That hit me like a ton of bricks. I had to wrestle with that. As we over-functioning females, and maybe there's a few males in that category too, often think that there has to be or is something that we can do or must do. If God leads, doing nothing may be the most courageous thing you will ever do. This idea is repeated in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, when we are again told to take up the whole armor and stand firm. Make your skin crawl at the thought, right? Just stand firm. Gotta be something we can do. It's our human nature, right? We are doing something when we are standing firm in the Lord and the power of his might. We need wisdom and discernment and balance and courage and Holy Spirit control because things can get a little complex. At one point in Psalm 46.10, it says, cease striving and know that I am God. And then we check ourselves out in Ephesians 6 where it says, and having done all, stand and take your position knowing that the battle is the Lord's. Don't do, do. What is one to do? Well, keep on asking and keep on knocking as God knows, and it's not a one size fits all, nor is it a once and done, or do it the same way all the time. 
They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Have the courage to wait. He is your light, your salvation, and your stronghold. Psalm 3.3 assures us, but you, Lord, are a shield around me. Picture these things. My glory, the one who lifts my head high, is a shield. I sometimes think of him as a force field, you know. And as the song says, I'm still standing. You know, that song, I'm still standing. I'm still standing. So 31 or 43 years later, however you want to look at it, all glory to God. I'm still standing. I'm a little wiser and stronger, more humble and patient and less judgmental, if I say so myself, and more brave. All by his grace on a good day and while the construction is ongoing. How about you? How are you doing with the enemies of your soul? People, places, attitudes, tendencies, or even when we call it sins in our lives or your life. How do we take the pulse for where we are at? The rest of the Psalm gives us some ways to help this examination of ourselves to happen. Oh, this is a cool one, I learned this. When I call on him, hear my call, Lord, be merciful to me and answer me. I have to call. I have to drop the dime. When was the last time you called on the Lord? Every day, I hope. We can be short-sighted if we only call on God when we are in trouble. Think of how you are with your besties. Do you only call them when you're in trouble? We call to stay in touch. How are you relating to God? Are you staying in touch? Is he a bestie? Do you walk and talk with him throughout your day? I know, sounds a little weird, but it's all he's always there and available. It is not a long distance call. Take him at his word or go to his word and have him talk to you through that. Check this out. Seek his face. Have you had a face-to-face -face with the Lord lately? To seek his face means to strongly desire his presence and blessing. In my research, I found that face and presence are sometimes substituted for one another. Do you know how important it is for a baby to see your face? To look into one another's eyes? One expert, Dr. Dana Earhart Weiss has said, the developmental importance of eye gaze is both emotional and intellectual. It has special significance in early attachment and bonding and plays an important part in the process of obtaining information about the world and emotions. I love attachment theory, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's tricky. Wow. Let's think about how a lack of face-to-face -face time with God may be affecting our emotional and spiritual and intellectual development. In a book, The Other Half of Church by Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks, is that how he says his name? Which Wanda has so graciously brought to our attention. And there's going to be an online possibility of taking it if you want. There's an entire chapter on joy, the face of Jesus that transforms. I would love to read you the entire chapter because, as you know, Cher likes to share. But due to time constraints, I will try to summarize. I'm doing okay for me. A section of that chapter comes under the heading, Joy and the neglected face of God. 
and says that some mistranslations have actually substituted the word presence for face. Psalm 21 is given as an example. You make him joyful with gladness in your presence is actually in Hebrew. You make him happy with joy with your face. They go on to talk about the brain science that reveals that this joy sensation is crucial for emotional and relational development. To quote, our brain looks specifically to the face of another person to find joy. And this fills up our emotional gas tank. The face is key. When a Bible translation erases the picture of God's face, our brains, this is still their quote, <laughs> the, when the, erases the picture of God's face, our brains do not react as strongly. God bless these scientists, Peter. I don't know. Another Selah moment. Let it get down. Think of the implications of this, not only in terms of us seeing, seeking God's face, but the impact over the last few years while our faces have been hidden from each other. The enemy of our soul never sleeps. There's a spiritual dimension to all that is going on. Now, I woke up this morning in a panic thinking, what does the face of God look like? Who am I? What do I do, Lord? How do you explain that? In, in Old Testament times, people thought they would die if they saw the face of God, of his glory. So I asked God what to do with this. Whether it's the sensing of his presence through prayer and worship, remember the two words can be interchanged, um, seeking a deeper relationship with God, staying in the word, it all helps us to get a clearer picture of what God looks like. For Christian believers, we study the life of Jesus who said in John 14, verses 8 to 11, if you see me, you have seen the Father. The depths of this I will leave to the biblical scholars in our midst. And you can talk to them and go have brandy and cigars in the back room and figure all that stuff out. But then I, he gave me the song. Remember the song, Some Children See Him? Some children see him lily white. Some see him bronzed and brown. Some see him almond-eyed and dark as day. And some see him dark as day. So God can take care of this for you if you want to, to, to know to know that. Some see him as a guy on the chosen, you know, like however he shows up, but more of a sensing of his, his, his presence. The psalmist then says, goes on to say, do not hide your face from me. You know, heaven forbid. It's never too late to have that face-to-face -face with God. You FaceTime everybody else, right? Let's FaceTime with God. Well, all that wasn't downloaded back then, but it came forth as I prepared this. So let's go on. In, t in verse 10, even if father and mother forsake me, the, the psalmist has the assurance that the Lord will receive him. Forsaking can take many forms, from actual abandonment to not being present when in the presence of your child or another human being, not being emotion emotionally not being available when you're with someone, lack of proper caring for a child's practical needs, um, lack of discipline, or over-discipline, and many more. God knows that parenting is a hard enough job without guilting someone. In psychology, they talk about the good enough parent, as there's no such thing as a perfect parent. Sorry if I'm bursting anyone's balloons out there <laughs> who thought they were the perfect parent. There's something to be said for an A for effort. Every parent gets an A for effort. But there are also many skills available to help for any areas 
where we may be struggling or have been devoid of good role models ourselves. The Lord downloaded some good information that night about this relative to my own life. He can show you things as well. Whatever kind of parent or parental forsaking you may have experienced, the psalmist assures us that the Lord will receive you. We can begin a healing journey and be a victor and not a victim. It takes courage and time. This is some kind of bite from this psalm. Well, let's take a turn for the grand ending. In verse 11, the psalmist pleads, teach me your way, O Lord. Much of this is not possible without a teachable spirit. Remember back to when the student is ready, the teacher appears, or another saying, what's the Lord doing in your life? Only what you let him. We have a good list for how to handle the enemies, the foes, the armies in our lives. Call upon him, seek his face, and be teachable. So what is seeking? I, First Chronicles in the Old Testament tells us, if you seek him, he will be found by you. That's 28 verse 9. We seek him when we go to him for comfort, for strength and reassurance, acknowledging who he is and what he can do. We put God first when we worship him, praise him, thank him, trust him, and rely on him rather than ourselves or anyone else. And just in case in the New Testament, um, it says who, in Hebrews 11:6, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Much of the, uh, um, so in verse 12, the psalmist asks to not be turned over to the desires of his foes. Again, these foes can be internal, our own thoughts, habits of mind, or external people or situations. I took comfort in the fact that these foes could be false witnesses. That was such a big drop in my spirit at that time. Back to the six children. Sorry. <laughs> the Lord used this psalm to assure me that there's not much one can do about a false witness. Saying anything starts to come across as, methinks thou dost protest too much. If one tries to defend oneself against such claims or stories or whatever, it comes across as, methinks thou dost protest too much. Same goes for people who may be judging from the outside. Some tongues were probably wagging about the prodigal father and his course of action. <laughs> It seems human nature. More courage became available to me to rest in him, keep my eyes on him and not people. And as one who likes happy endings, verses 13 and 14 make me want to jump up and cheer. Probably you too, because we're getting toward the end. Oh, how I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It may not be instant potatoes, then what? As verse 14 says, wait for the Lord. Be strong, take heart, be of good courage, and wait for the Lord. I found out that waiting is a spiritual discipline, and I continue to find that out. What does good courage look like? My answer would be seek and keep on seeking the will and the way that God has for us by taking bites out of his word, listening to his Holy Spirit, and being in fellowship with other believers. I caught the Lord's vision for me and on a good day could live in the fullness of it. 
It's not once and done. We must return and be reminded of what the Lord says. When I start to let the cares of the world or doubts or self-pity seep in, I grab Psalm 27 and many more scriptures that assure me to live in and with faith, hope, and love. Not in my strength, but in the strength of the Lord. We need the constant reminder of the word. We need to seek and we will find. We need fellowship with like-minded people. We need to bear one another's burdens. First, people need the Lord, and then people need each other. Well, back to how to eat a poem. Stanza three goes on to indicate that poetry leaves no waste. Everything is there for a reason, right, Pat? To be consumed by the reader. It's the reader's job to chew on it and break it down and digest it, just as one would do with a delicious piece of fruit. Since many of the Psalms are poems, Let's retitle the poem, How to Eat the Bible. It would go something like this. Don't be polite. Bite in. Pick up the Bible with your fingers and lick the juice that may run down your chin. The Bible is ready and ripe now, whenever you are. You do not need a knife or fork or spoon or plate or napkin or tablecloth. For there is no core or stem or rind or pit or seed or skin to throw away. May we all, with our Bibles, with spiritual discipline, and with Holy Spirit's help, bite in without hesitation and enjoy this fruit that the Word of God contains, and then share our fruit with others. <laughs>